Imagine yourself, just imagine, it's a normal day, any normal given day, you're walking down the street. Imagine you're walking down the street like this, and across the street, you see two people walking by. It's a short street, so they can see you, and you kind of recognize somebody over there, so you wave, but you just keep walking. But what you don't realize is over on the other side of the street, they keep talking about you. And because one person knows you well, and another person says, who is that? Who is that person? And um, they start whispering about you, because people do talk about you. Did you know that? We talk about a lot of people, because you talk about people, and you know you would talk about that person. And they point at that person, and they say, and they're pointing at you, and they say, that person really fill in the blank. What do you hope they say about you? Would they say, that person really is cool? Or they might say, that person really is good looking. I know they'd say a point at Arnie. Now there, it's a good looking guy. Would they say, that person really is funny? Or that person really is a rich person? What do you fear that they may say about you? That person is, you know, that person's really boring. Don't talk to them at a party, stay away, where that, you know, that person's a jerk, that person over there, he's a jerk, or that person, there goes a hypocrite, I wonder, do you wish, do you wish as somebody's talking about you, do you wish that person, the person would say, you know that person over there, you see that person, that person really knows God. My guess is that very few of us want to be known for that. And I have actually found a lot of Christians that don't like to be known for that. I know of more Christians that would rather be known for voting for Trump than praying to Jesus. Because Chris, it's just not cool. It's not sexy. It's not advantageous to be known as a follower of God. In fact, uh, please don't tell anybody I go to the church down the street. Just don't tell them. Okay, if we're not known for knowing Christ, if you aren't known for knowing Christ, or if you aren't known for knowing God, ask yourself, what are you known for? What are you known for? Are you known because you have nice hair? You have cute shoes? You wear cute shoes? Are you known because you support a certain football team? Is that how you're known? Are you known because you wear camo everywhere you go? Is that how you're known? Some people like to be known as the camel-wearing person. Are you known for your house always being clean? Is that why you're known? Are you known because you've watched more superhero movies than the other 100 million Americans that watch them every time they come out? Is that why you're known? Is that why you're born? Is that why you're born? Not to sound arrogant or self-righteous, but I hope, I hope, someday, somebody sees me across the street and they point at me, I hope they say, you know that guy? I think that guy really knows Jesus. Or when I die, I hope those that are closest to me say, Chris Weeks really walked with the Lord. I mean, he really did. 
It's sure as much better than saying what I've seen at many funerals. Oh, that guy really knew how to work hard and play hard. What does that even mean? Oh, he worked nine to five every day, but when he got home, boy, he played hard. What does that mean? He drank a lot of beer. He went fishing. Boy, he could fish. He could shoot a jump shot. Is that all you want out of life? Today we come to a passage in Genesis, honestly, that I'm pretty sure most of us here are not familiar with. I wasn't that familiar with it. I know I read it somewhere in the past, but I had to preach on it. So I started, I started saying, how in the world do you preach on this passage? It's one of those passages I would never pick for a memory verse. I would never really guide my life by it. I yawned a few times as I read through it. But then I started looking at it and realized there's, we are given a really unique view here to see through the eyes of a non-believer and what they see of a true believer. It's kind of interesting. So if you can open up to Genesis 21, we're going to look at 22 to 34. In a way, I was reading this and going, man, this is a really anticlimactic compared to what's coming up next week, which is one of the greatest passages in all of Genesis, honestly. And this is one of these sidetrack things, but when I started thinking about it, Ooh, I wondered, how do people view me? And That's really important. Starting in verse 22. At that time, this is Genesis 21, verse 22. At that time, and by the way, I'm reading from NIV, 1984. Some of you might wonder what version. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me and the country where you are living as an alien the same kindness I have shown to you. Abraham said, I swear. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I didn't no, you've done this. You didn't tell me, and I just heard about it only today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? He replied, accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. Or it's my way of telling you, I'm telling you the truth, that was my well. Verse 31, so the place was called Beersheba. Because the two men swore an oath. can mean an oath or seven is what Beersheba means. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. And that's the passage. It's a story of two different men from two sharing or having two different worldviews, and they're trying to form here a relationship based on mutual respect. It's really what's happening. And I'll tell you, make no, make no mistake about it, there is no reason in the world for these two people to get along other than one of these men knew God and the other man knew he knew God. That's the reason they're getting along. And so this one man realized it's, he better get on good terms with Abraham because Abraham knows God. So I want to be friends with the guy who's friends 
with God. And so from what Scripture says about Abimelech, so here we have two different guys, Abimelech on one hand and Abraham. So what Scripture says about Abimelech, we have every reason to believe he's a very important guy. Pastor Ken talked about him two weeks ago, and what we can learn about him is that he was rich, and he's very powerful. Some Hebrew scholars believe the name Abimelech is more of a title, means father of kings. And so Abimelech is more like Caesar, or like the chief, than it is a personal name. Later in Genesis, we're going to meet his son, who's also called Abimelech. So it could be a title, could be a name, but a title. But Abimelech in this story had a military attache, Phicol, working along with him, commander of his armies. Abimelech had many wives. He had a lot of property. He had a lot of livestock. By what I would say is everything this guy is, everything Abimelech is, is I think kind of what we'd like to be known for, rich, wealthy, Powerful. I don't know about the wives part, but you know the other stuff? Pretty good. I mean, this guy, Abimelech, is the kind of guy that, you know, you talk about in the front page news, but you notice you really don't know him now. You know the other guy, though. Who's the other guy? Abraham. Abraham is a rich farmer. One more thing I want to say about Abimelech. You can say he's a very sensible and sensitive guy. By sensible... Two stories ago, when God spoke to him, he was willing to listen to him and recognize there's a person called God. He's sensitive to possible destruction from God. So he's willing to listen to things pertaining to God. So he's, he's open-minded, you could say. Now Abraham, on the other hand, he was rich, but he's a farmer. He's a wanderer. That's why he came to Abimelech to live in his land. He said, hey, can I live in the land down here at southern Israel? He's in the city of Gerar. He had to go to Abimelech to get permission. He was also a guy that you're not sure you could trust because last time you met Abimelech, he lied to him. said, Sarah's my sister. Got Abimelech in a little bit of trouble, a lot of trouble. But Abraham was obviously a man of faith. I mean, God, he knew God and God knew him. So even though he wasn't perfect, God walked with him. And because of this, it made quite an impact on Abimelech, even to the point where Abimelech said, hey, look, let's make a treaty, and if we make this treaty, Abraham, just do one thing. Don't lie to me anymore, okay? Can we do that? Yeah, no problem. I won't lie to you. And then Abraham said to him, and by the way, since we're making this treaty, some of your men took one of my wells, and I'll give you seven lambs to prove it. Why would somebody like Abimelech even care about that? Why would he say, well, it's my well, I own the land, but he, he's like, okay, you can have it. Most ancient kings wouldn't suffer a farmer like Abraham. They would just claim the well and tell Abraham to get lost. If you want to live on my land, quit complaining. But he respected Abraham. Why? Because of verse 22. And I just want you to camp at verse 22 a second. Abimelech comes up to Abraham, and the reason why he wanted to make a treaty with Abraham, the reason why he respected Abraham, is because of this. He sees something in Abraham's life. He says to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. 
That's amazing to me. Would anybody ever say that about you? Ever. Abraham, God's with you in everything you do, so let's be friends, okay? You know, I'd like you to be on my side, and let's, let's, let's make peace. When God is with a person, I mean really with a person, I mean really with a person, really walking with a person, you can't help but notice. Even non-believers will know there's something different about you. There's a weightiness, a nobility that flows from the person who has God on their side. You could say it like this, respect comes naturally to those who are protected by an awesome God. People will, they may not like you, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but they will respect you. And when you have God on your side, people will notice. The first, first Corinthians says, some of you will smell like a fragrance of life to people. Some of you will smell like a fragrance of death to people, all because you are a minister of the gospel, or all because Jesus is with you. How do you, how do you smell to people? How's your, how's your spiritual body odor? How do you smell to people? Do people even notice that God's with you? Uh, to me, it's, just, it's not a big principle, but it's a massive principle. I wish people from this church, when they left, people would say, there goes somebody that knows God. Well, what are some of those things that people see? I mean, we can go all through Abraham's life, but I, I want to um, just bring out two characters whose qualities are very obvious because God's with them. And I, I'm going to bring up these characters because one's from the old, one's from the new. And, they're, and I'm bringing them up because if they have God on their side, so can you. I mean, it's, sometimes we look at Abraham as this amazing guy, but I just want to show you two people whose hand was, God's hand was on them. And people could just tell. And I want to bring up characteristics that I believe will be true of you that are not true of other people who do not walk with God. The first example, I want you to go to the book of Daniel. And I'm going to talk about Daniel and just bring up two character qualities of Daniel, I believe, are evident because he walks with God. And God walks with him. And I bring up Daniel because Daniel at the time was, some, some scholars will say he might have been 12 years old. He was taken captive as a slave. He was forced to live in a completely pagan culture. Completely pagan. He's taken out of Israel, had to live in Babylon. And even in this culture, where nobody's for God, he still walked with God. And he might have been 12, some speculate 12 to 18, maybe about a 16-year-old guy. And there's two qualities that stood out in Daniel's life. Number one we find in chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8. So the king of Babylon is looking for these young men to serve in his courts, and Daniel was one, and they were going to you know, see how they look in verse 8. They're serving him food, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. 
what, what character quality did Daniel have? I mean, I'm not going to go into his whole thing. I just want to talk his quality. Simple. He had godly resolve. He had resolve. What does this mean? We call this conviction that acts. Resolve is conviction. I believe something, and because I believe something about God and about how God views me, I am going to act this way. I am going to act differently. He had godly resolve. While everyone says yes to a lot of the different trends and appetites, a person with godly resolve says, I can't, and they don't. I just can't. There's a really interesting pamphlet that says, Others may, you cannot. It's written by G.D. Wilson. Some of the things he says, Others may boast of themselves, of their work, of their successes, but the Holy Spirit will not allow you to. God may let others be honored and put forward and keep you hidden in obscurity in order to produce some fragrant fruit for his coming glory, which can only be produced in the shade. He may let others be great, but keep you small. He may let others do a work for him and get the credit for it now, but the reward for your work is held in the hands of Jesus, and you will not see it until he comes. Others may, you know, but because God has such a close watch on you, you cannot. That's godly resolve. They're convictions. As G.K. Chesterton once said, if you don't stand for something, if you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. And a lot of Christians are falling for anything given to them. Whether it be, you know, sexual deviancy, whether it be, you know, addictions, whether it be ways to think or watch, or I don't have conviction, so I don't care. When God's with you, he makes you stand. Second thing about Daniel's chapter 2, 14 and 21. Chapter 2, 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? The king had a dream and he wanted somebody to interpret it for him and nobody could, but Daniel could, and he spoke with wisdom and tact. Verse 21 of Daniel 2 um, Actually, verse 24, Daniel 2:24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king. I'll interpret his dream. There's, if you know the story, Daniel is able to interpret dreams, but Daniel speaks with wisdom and tact. Not only did he have real answers that were given to him by God about the way the world is, but he knew how to communicate them. In the book of John, it says, the law came from Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. People who know Jesus, their lips speak grace and truth, or you could say truth with grace. Your words will be graceful. They'll be truthful. Not just intelligent, but truthful. They'll speak to the heart. Here, I'll show you one of my favorite verses. Go to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, right in the middle of the Bible, Psalm 119. And I want you to look at verses 97 to 100. It's an amazing promise. 
Verse 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. I love it. I love your law. I meditate it on it all day long. I just, I think about it. I meditate it. I chew on it. I let it sink into the pores of my soul. Your commands, which is his law, your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders. <laughs> so I'm smarter than enemies. I, I, kind of, I know more than even some of my teachers. I, that's arrogant. Not when you know God, it isn't. You start seeing things. You start coming alive. You start to think when God's with you. I mean, you really think. Your mind starts firing, and you become a good thinker. You're wise, and you know how to speak with grace. You don't just follow current opinions and trends and say the same silly thing everybody says. Your words are heavy. Every word matters. In the book of Jeremiah, God says to Jeremiah, if you speak worthy words and not worthless words, you will be my spokesman. If you speak worthy words and not unworthy words, you will be my spokesman. It's funny. People just fall in the same arguments. Like, let's take abortion. How do you talk about abortion? Abortion's a woman's right to choose. No, you know when a woman's right to choose was if you think through this, the woman's right to choose was having sex. That's the choice. After you have it, there's a baby born. You don't have the choice to kill, but we now don't know how to think. We really don't know how to think, so we're like, yes, you're right. That's a woman's body. No, that's, a babe, that's the baby's body. The woman's body is just helping the baby's body to grow. It's not her body. But we don't know how to think anymore. That's a political, that's not a political statement. What happens if you let that baby grow? It turns into a human life. But we are scared to think and talk and have convictions. Let's go to the New Testament example. His name is Zacchaeus, chapter 19 in the book of Luke. The reason I bring up Zacchaeus is Zacchaeus was, um, he's a guy that Jesus came to his town and came to his house. And because he's coming to his house, who's going to be with him, everything about Zacchaeus changed. Because he was a guy that, truthfully, I think before Jesus came to his town, he's a guy that nobody liked. He's a tax collector. He was short. He would scam people and take a lot of money. He's probably slimy. Probably talk like he's from the mafia. You know what I'm talking about? Hey, you give me, you, you give me some money now and I'll let you pass through. You understand? And he'd take your money. Probably that kind of guy. And then um, Jesus comes to town. And look what he does in 19.4. So he hears uh, who Jesus is, verse 2, verse 3. He wanted to see Jesus, but he's short, so he couldn't. So he ran ahead. He climbed a sycamore fig tree since Jesus was coming his way. And so for me, 
here's what I, imagine this scene a second. He climbs this tree and people are pointing at him because he, what, what is he doing up there? What's the key is doing up in the tree? Oh, he wants to follow Jesus, you know. He's, that's crazy. He was willing to embarrass himself just to be with Jesus. He didn't mind embarrassing himself just to be with Jesus. Sometimes I am too scared to be considered a Jesus follower. I'm a pastor. Sometimes I shut my mouth in situations because I don't want to tell people I know God. I get embarrassed. I want people to think I'm cool or hip or a rational person. Why are we so embarrassed to be connected to Jesus? And I'm, I'm asking this very seriously because I guarantee you most of you in here are. It's scary you half to death to tell anybody you believe. You really believe. I remember when I used to work in retail, I would pray when I'd wake up, God, give me courage. And number two, get me in a conversation that will make it obvious I'm a Christian. And he answers that prayer. I'm not kidding you, but it's a scary prayer to pray. And when you get into conversations, you have to listen because you'll always have opportunities to stand up for Christ. Many of us don't because we're embarrassed. Second thing is 19.8. Look what Zacchaeus does. You know, so verse 7, Jesus said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. And verse 7, all the people are muttering, oh, he's going to the house of Zacchaeus? That mafia guy? What would he do there? You know, is he going to try to take some money off Jesus? Doesn't he know Jesus is poor? Doesn't have no money. Verse 8, but Zacchaeus stood up, said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now. I have uh, cheated, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Here and now. He was willing to do whatever, willing to do whatever to make God happy, to repent, change even to give up his precious money. Because Jesus came to his house, God's opinion of him was more important than having what he wanted. What's precious to you? I, I, I think there's two things that are precious to us, and I'm not going to answer money. I think money's a means to get these two things. But if I could be honest with you, I think, and, I, and I'm saying this because I have these two things that are very precious to me. Number one is leisure time. My time is my time and don't mess it up. Do not come to my house when it's my time. I know you feel that way. Why do they got to bug me? Right? I don't, I don't want to answer the phone. Just leave me alone. Our time is our time. And then the second thing I think that is precious to us is our entertainment. Somehow, we have somewhere, we have been led to believe our existence is to be made happy, to be entertained. How do I know this? Because I love to be entertained. I love it. I absolutely love it. 
I love having my time, and I love being entertained in my time. That's the American way. And because of that, there's things I struggle with, and one thing I struggle with is probably the most important thing, and I'm going to give you a logical argument of how we, do we really do whatever we can to make God happy? And here's the argument. And this isn't for guilt, this is I'm telling you my honest issue. Okay, so we believe a, a, a premise, an axiom, God is everything and he can do anything, correct? We believe that, I mean, we sing that every day. God is everything, and he can do anything. So then you extrapolate this down. How do I connect with God? The means we've been given is prayer. Prayer is the mean to connect with him, to learn of him anytime we want. And so what we've tried to do in our church is we've tried to offer opportunities to do that. Not, I'm not talking just Sunday morning. We've put together something called The Gathering, an event to help people pray more. And nobody comes. Maybe we don't advertise it enough, but if I could be honest, because this is about me, some of the reasons I don't go is it interferes with my leisure and my entertainment. People don't pray because it's boring. And whenever you use that word boring, it reveals entertainment. That's what life's about. And I'm really talking about me. But I bet I'm talking about you too. I wonder if I, when I go to heaven, will Jesus, you know, let's say I go to heaven, I get to the pearly gate. Will Jesus say... Hey, Chris, yeah, what was your favorite Netflix series down there? I like that one, too. Man, I, if I was you, I'd, I'd have watched all of them, too. Oh, do you think he'd ask me this? He goes, hey, Chris, I'm really curious. How good were you at taking that round piece of leather and throwing it through a metal orange steel that they, were you good at that? Oh, I've always wanted to be good. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> it's the most important thing to some people. That they could take a round little ball and throw it through a hoop. Look at me. What in the world has happened to us? I mean, I'm not saying it's wrong to do that. I'm saying it's wrong to be identified for your whole life by that. So when I walk across the street, people say, that guy can shoot a three-pointer. <laughs> Who made me? A guy by the name of Jesus. Do I know him? Well, if you're listening and you want to be known as someone who knows God, a person of conviction, a person who's wise, a person who's not ashamed of being affiliated with Jesus, a person who wants to do what makes God happy, I first of a warning, but then I want to show you how it's possible to be a guy that has got living their life. The first warning is that some people won't like you. Luke 6.22, there's going to be people that hate you and don't, they exclude you. They don't want you around. That's the hardest part, I think, for Christians is be excluded. Luke 6.22 is a tough one. But it says, if they did that to me, then they'll do that to you. So, 
But there are some people that are watching you, like Abimelech watched Abraham, and they're curious, and they wonder what makes you tick. And they and and I'll be I'll be real honest with you. I think there's people out there that are just dying to meet a real Christian, just looking for somebody they can trust. So the second person would be the sensible and curious, and Peter says they give that they want to hear reasons for why you believe what you believe. But I think it takes some time, it takes some time of watching you to see are you genuine. They'll see you walking on the street and go, ah, maybe I should talk to that person. Have you ever had somebody just come up and talk to you who really don't know you and they say, um, I just have some questions I think you might be able to answer. It's really amazing because people are watching you. It's really amazing when that happens. So, what do godly people do to have God with them? Let's go back to the story of Abraham. This is um, it's very simple, but you won't catch it if you're not looking. It's very simple. Chapter 21, verse 32 and 33. So they made a deal. You know, there's a lot of scholars that really get into the ewe lambs and making a deal. I'm, I really, I'm not going to get into that because it's just he gave them seven lambs to prove he's telling the truth and so they named the place Beersheba made an oath but then 32 so after they made this treaty so Abraham and Abimelech shake hands everything settled they trust each other it says Abimelech and Phicol the commander of his force returned to the land of Philistines so they go home they go home they're gone and Abraham's by himself he's all alone so what does he do? Verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. Abimelech called God Elohim, just general term God. This is Jehovah, the covenant God, the God that Abraham knows. So you could say it like this. After Abimelech left, and there is Abraham all by himself, with no one watching. The spotlight has gone out. The curtains have closed. Abraham calls on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. Abraham chooses to be with God even when no one's looking. So God chooses to be with Abraham when they are. Not only does God, uh, Abraham know God as a covenant-loving, eternal God who never ends, meaning he's going to see that vow that he made, but he's... But he loves worshiping his God. He's not doing it because he's supposed to. He's doing it because he wants to. You could summarize it like this, and, I'm, and this is an, a truth I've come by. It's, it's like a, I came to this truth after about... 10 years and when I was in ministry and it's a little phrase I try to live by and sometimes I pray and here's the phrase it goes like this if you find no joy in meeting with God no one will find joy 
in meeting God through you. Now, here's how I came to this truth. Before I was a Christian, I was a, I wasn't a fool in the sense of I just wasn't, um, I like to call people rockheads or gearheads, you know, that just don't listen. I was listening. I wanted to know. And there were a lot of people in my school that claimed to be evangelical Christians. I wasn't an evangelical Christian. I was a traditional Roman Catholic, but I had a lot of questions. And I'd ask my friends, you know, and um, all of a sudden, one day, this, in the cafeteria, this guy, he was a youth, uh, for Youth for Christ, he would show up, this really hip, probably 25-year-old, hey, man, kind of guy. And he'd sit down at the main table in the cafeteria. All of my friends would go and sit around him. But these were the same friends that when he wasn't there, would be cracking horrendous jokes, talking wickedly about women, and they were scared to talk about Christ. But when this young life guy showed up, they all wanted to go to what I call bikini evangelism. They go to this. I live in a rich town. They take kids on buses to go to rich beaches and hear the gospel for ten minutes. And they wanted to get around this guy because you know, and this guy, hey man, and they would all claim they're Christians. And then when the guy would leave, they would slump back into this falseness. Because I saw him at parties. And I'd ask him, who's that guy? Oh, that guy's so cool. Well, what is it? Oh, he's a Christian leader, Youth for Christ. He's so cool. I said, you guys go to that? Yeah, it's awesome. We ride ski-doos, and man, we go water skiing. And Well, he's a Christian, right? Yeah, oh, and he gives the five-minute gospel, but so much fun. Then I became a youth pastor, and I, and I had flashbacks to that. I don't want to be that guy that goes into the school and everybody gathers around. And then they had this thing called Meet You at the Pole. And Meet You at the Pole, when I was a youth pastor, they'd pray for the country around the flagpole. And all these kids would come out, be student-led, and I'd go out. And I went there to show up. And I'm telling you, I never saw so many kids at this Meet You at the Pole. I'd never seen them in youth. But boy... When it's something like that and you can cry, it's really powerful. Is it? And I know you're saying, Chris, isn't it good kids come out and pray? Yeah, but I knew those kids when they weren't going to the poll. And other kids knew those kids. So you're telling me those other kids that are looking for Christ, they wouldn't talk to those kids. They'd say, oh, what did they do? Yeah, they're praying, but I know what they do the rest of the week. And then one more thing happened to me. About two weeks later, after me at pulled, this guy came into my office. He was in my youth group. He was a big guy. He was kind of athletic, but he said, he said it like this. He goes, Chris, I love, Pastor Chris, I love football. Last year I didn't get to play much, but I really want to start next year. What do I need to do? Because I love football. I said, well, I said, you really want to get good? I can help you. I you know, I had, him, I had a weight thing work out for him, a, a, you know, working up to be losing weight, how to run, you know, to get ready for the year. He had about eight months to get ready. He said, oh, that'd be great. I love football. He never came in after that. But when the new year started, he got on the team and put on a uniform, but he always would come to my office because they never play me. They don't play me. Wish they'd play me. I said, did you do those other? I didn't. Oh, then did you really, do you really love it then? I mean, if you really love something, you'll do it. 
I love God. I mean, I can sing songs Sunday morning like you won't believe. I love them. But do you find joy in God alone? Because if you don't find joy in God alone, I'm convinced it's obvious. It's obvious. So let's say you are saying, I want to begin, and I don't know where to begin. Here's where we begin. This week coming up is our week. This is our week. Go to the next slide. I want you to start to know our story. We have Easter next Sunday. That's the resurrection. We have Good Friday, an incredible service here has been put together next Friday. But start to know our story. So starting Monday, start reading just for 15 minutes in the Bible. Meditate on what you're reading. And take some time out just to walk alone and talk to God a little bit. But start with the story. Isaiah 53, begin on Monday, 15 minutes. That's the Old Testament story of what happened. Tuesday, start with Matthew 27, just one chapter of the Passion story. Wednesday, Mark. Thursday, Luke. Friday, John. And in the back of the sermon notes, I have this whole thing listed for you as two questions. Really simple questions. And then when you get to Saturday, Saturday is a sad day. It's when... It's quiet. So Psalm 13 is about where is God when it's quiet? But come prepared for Sunday. And I, you know what? If you do this, I'll tell you, Sunday will be different. Easter will be different for you. It'll be a new kind of Easter. But, you know, I, I just feel, uh, you know, I, I just was convicted a lot in my vacation as I was praying to say, how am I doing as a pastor preparing God, people to meet God, I just got a text yesterday. I have a cousin who I knew pretty well, and he's got stage uh, three cancer. He's got two, three weeks to live. He's a um, first cousin. His name's Steve. And so we were praying for him on a family chat. My sister Gina called him, shared with him the gospel, and said, Steve, I haven't talked to you probably in 10 years, but I just feel convicted to call you and tell you and talk to you. I didn't do that. I didn't have the guts to do it. Man, my sister's got guts. But this guy's going to die. Do I have the guts to stand up? And I just feel that, uh, I don't know. We need, we need God. Our country needs bad. And if, there's an, if we're not the salt and light, who will be? 